been chosen for our message this morning is taken from 2 Samuel. It's 2 Samuel chapter 16 and verses 5 to 14. 2 Samuel 16, 5 to 14. As King David approached Bahurim, a man from the same, the same clan as Saul's family came out from there. His name was Shimei, son of Gera, and he cursed as he came out. He pelted David and all the king's officials with stones, though all the troops and special garb were on David's right and left. As he cursed, Shimei said, Get out! Get out, you murderer, you scoundrel! The Lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the household of Saul, in whose place you've reigned. The Lord has given the kingdom into the hands of your son Absalom, and you have come to ruin because you are a murderer. Then Abishai, son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and cut off his head. But the king said, What does this have to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? If he's cursing because the Lord said to him, Curse David, who can ask, Why do you do this? David then said to Abishai and all his officials, My son, my own flesh and blood is trying to kill me. How much more than this Benjamite? Leave him alone. Let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look upon my misery and restore me to his covenant blessing instead of his curse today. So David and his men continued along the road, while Shimei was going along the hillside opposite him, cursing as he went and throwing stones at him and showering him with dirt. The king and all the people with him arrived at their destination exhausted. And there he refreshed himself. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Warren, and thank you, Pastor Eddie, uh, for that prayer for us this morning. Uh, just a few housekeeping details before we get underway. Uh, first off, you will have noticed the aforementioned balloons. Uh, they are for the children today. So if you are a child or you know a child, please encourage them to take a balloon out of the arch. They're fairly easy to remove, uh, and you're welcome to, the children are welcome to take them home. Uh, so please don't forget that after the service. Uh, adults, if you consider yourself to be a child, uh, you are welcome as well. <laughs> uh, but let's make sure our little people get a chance to enjoy uh, those decorations. Secondly, I want to say a huge thank you to this church. Uh, I was able to go away on study leave the last couple, uh, excuse me, well, about last week, I was able to go back to the United States. Uh, I got to see my family for a couple of nights, got to attend uh, the Society of Biblical Literature Conference, which was very helpful for my research, uh, as well as a number of other things. So I want to thank the church for their support. I also want to thank you for uh, those of you who helped out my family while I was away. Uh, that was a tremendous blessing uh, to us, and you don't know how much that means uh, to me uh, that you looked after them, helped look after them while we were away. Um, I continue to be astounded. I shouldn't be, but I continue to be astounded by uh, the generosity 
generosity of God's people here at WDBC. Uh, you are a true, a true blessing uh, to me. With that, uh, how are we doing? Have you been surviving this series on pain? Uh, it's not quite pleasant, is it? <laughs> uh, I can tell you as a preacher, it's, it's difficult as well. Um, as we've been saying, the reason we're doing this series is not because we're trying to wallow in our wounds or trying to rehearse regrets or trigger deep trauma from our lives. The reason that we are preaching through pain is because pain is so often a silent companion to all of us. It's the unspoken burden for a variety of reasons that inclines us to shame or to solitude or to silence, among other things. And if we're not careful, our pain can overwhelm us and can even tempt us to despair. But God's word shines a light on our pain so that we don't need to hide or hurt alone. Pain reminds us of our lack. I don't know if you've been feeling that. It reminds us of our weakness, of our need. Yet however strong the pain might press upon our need, in the great words of Spurgeon, we have a great Christ for our need. And this is what we aim to discover in this series, that though our pains be many to us, Christ is more. And that though our need is acute, his grace is abundant. So here we come to the fifth of six messages in this series, and thus far we've looked at painful decisions, painful finances, painful minds and bodies, painful losses, and now we come to painful relationships. I just left the U.S. two days before American Thanksgiving, and you could already hear the relational turmoil sort of bubbling in the surface as families prepare to get back together with one another. I was in a few airports and witnessed this firsthand. Um, but there's something unique about the pain of relationships, and it's this, I believe. It's that of all the pains we've examined thus far, this pain has a face. Relational pain has a voice. It has a manner. It has a countenance. It has, above all, a will, because at the end of the day, the source of relational pain is a person, often a close one. And so the hurt that we harbor from others, especially from those who are meant to love and to care for us, it casts this great pall of fear. Uh, it casts a shadow of grief over our own self and over our sense of identity. And it also impacts how we relate to God, how we relate to others, and how we relate to ourselves. So perhaps of all the pain we have explored, it's relational pain that can be most directly attributed to human evil, to the sinful desires ruling men and women's hearts. But the prevalence of relational pain doesn't make it any easier to endure. Just because we all know what it's like doesn't make it easier. And if you think about it, this makes sense because... God tells us that men and women were made to know him and that now that we are outside of the garden, east of Eden, as it were, the closest a person might get to seeing God in their life is actually in the face of another human being. Think about that. 
So we shouldn't be surprised then when these fallen human beings, these people made in God's image, when they commit evil upon one another, that this evil wounds us deeply. Are you with me? The Bible says as much, and when we open Holy Scriptures, we find pain littered along its pages, and it's often the relational pain of broken marriages, broken families, abusive encounters that we read there. But the golden thread that binds together the pages of scriptures is a word of hope. And Christians know that this hope has a name, Jesus, who is also a living person. Who is in himself the true source of healing for our pain because he has the power to restore us to God. To revive our dead spirits and to reconcile us with our enemies. And, and so I want to pause here and just... Give a gentle warning. Today's message might trigger some hurt for you. If it does, that's okay. If you need to leave, that's okay. No one's going to judge you. No one's going to condemn you. If you feel emotional, that's okay. If you feel angry or upset, that's okay. Because relational pain cuts deep. But I also hope that you're comforted this morning because you'll see that Jesus is ready to welcome us to his feet, no matter what state we're in. So before we turn to the text, would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, would you help us this morning as we open the scriptures to see your heart for us? Father, would you give us strength to bear with our weakness? May you give us the counsel of the comforter insight from our maker. May we be restored and renewed by your love so that we can show that love to others. And Lord, above all else, may we fall in love with Jesus more and more, especially today. It's in his name we pray. Amen. As we turn to the scriptures, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel. And here we come upon David in one of the lowest points of his life. It's one of those, how did I end up here moments, <laughs> which if you're someone who's in the midst of relational pain, you've probably been asking yourself that. How did I end up here? How did I get to this place? Why does it hurt so bad? Why does it hurt now? So to set the context of our passage, King David is fleeing Jerusalem. I'll say that again. King David is fleeing Jerusalem. He has abdicated his throne. He's left the palace that he built, and he's running for his life, as best he can at this age, from his son, Absalom, who is plotting successfully thus far to take his father's throne. He is not taking the Ark of the Covenant with him, and so he is symbolically departing God's presence, even as he is departing the, own, the city that bears his own name. Jerusalem was the city of David. In the passage that Warren read for us today, King David is met during his flight by a man who's hurling stones and accusations as David scrambles out of the city. This man, Shimei, is a relative of David's royal predecessor, Saul. And Shimei calls David a murderer and points the finger at him as being responsible for Saul's demise. Now, if you've been following the story thus far, you know that's not true. Saul is a victim of his own devices, his own failures, 
Well, nevertheless, the accusations come. We see a clue into David's mindset in his unwillingness to have Shimei beheaded there and then by Abishai, who was a member of his royal guard. And we can almost hear the tone of David's defeat and despair as he remarks to his royal officials, I imagine quite wearily, my son, my own flesh and blood is trying to kill me. How much more than this Benjamite? Leave him alone. Let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. These are the words of King David, God's anointed, Israel's king, as he heads for the hills or the riverbanks. <laughs> so, the first question we're going to look at is, how did, we, how did he get here? How did he get here? And in this, we're going to try to unravel this story a little bit by going back into what's been happening since chapter 13. So if you have a Bible or a smartphone, I encourage you to keep that open. But by way of an outline today, this is what we're looking at. We're going to look at this section, uh, just selections of the text from 2 Samuel 13 to 16, and then we're going to duck into Luke 7. We're going to see that God's story of David's broken family, it helps us to understand the nature of relational pain as well as Jesus' power to heal it. So there's three questions we're going to ask. How did David get here? Number one. Number two, where does David go from here? And thirdly, what if Jesus was here? How might it look different? So, to understand how we got here, we need to go back. David, as he's there walking along, getting rocks thrown at him, being accused of a murderer, things really began to unravel back in chapter 13. Now, you could argue that, well, actually it is true, that really it unraveled when David committed adultery and murder. But David, we know, was forgiven by God after his confession. And we know still that there was a consequence as the prophet Nathan came to him and he said, the sword will not depart from your house, David. And that's a clue to anyone who's following along that things are not about to get better for David, though he's been forgiven, but they're about to get worse. But the actual worseness comes starting in chapter 13. Now, for those of you not familiar with this story, chapter 13 records for us a story of sexual assault. And I recognize that this is not pleasant to think through or to think about. But given what we are learning in our culture today about the prevalence of sexual assault, about the lasting impacts of sexual assault, I'm comforted that God lets her story be told. And so I'm going to ask you to press on with me through God's word trusting that there is value in hearing the story of a woman wronged so horribly. Chapter 13, we read, In the course of time, Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar. Amnon is David's eldest son. He falls in love with Tamar. That's, that would be Amnon's half-sister, the beautiful sister of Absalom, who is also the son of David. 
Amnon became so obsessed with his sister Tamar that he made himself ill. He, she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. So here's the crown prince, Amnon, who you would think has everything available to him, but not Tamar. And he's sick because he can't have her. Verse 3, now Amnon had an advisor named Jonadab, son of Shimeah. Shimeah is David's brother. You may recall David and his brothers didn't exactly have the warmest relationship. Back in the story, you can imagine Samuel comes to the house to anoint the king, and he goes through all the brothers, and he passes over all of them, including this one here, David's brother, Shimeah. And David would go on to slay the giant, to kill the Philistine, Goliath. He would go on to get the throne and the kingdom. And you could just imagine that, you know, this little pesky runt never quite was viewed or welcomed by his brothers. Well, Shimei's son is named Jonadab, and he's a cousin of Amnon, and he's a very shrewd man, the scripture says. He's very crafty. He reads people really, really well. And he comes up with a devious plot. He asks Amnon, why do you, the king's son, look so haggard morning after morning? Amnon, you look different today. I, well, it's what's going on. Amnon said to him, I'm in love with, my, with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. He wants her and he can't have her. Go to bed and pretend to be ill, Jonadab says. When your father comes to see you, say to him, I'd like my sister Tamar to come and give me something to eat. Let her prepare the food in my sight that I may watch her and then eat it from her hand. This is the plan that Jonadab cooks up. He's like, well, I can help you get what you want. And so the deception ensues. Verse 6, Amnon lay down, pretended to be ill, when the king came to see him, Amnon said to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and make some special bread in my sight so I may eat from her hand. You see, Jonadab knew that David probably wasn't going to get involved unless his son was sick. And he knew that his, David probably had a soft spot for his son who was a bit ill. So, so faking to be ill, Amnon is in bed and he, finally, he gets a visit from the king. And David, who's... who's probably inclined to indulge his children, as many of us are, wants to know what he can do. And the request comes, which is a strange request, to have his sister come and make food to watch her put it together. Beware of adult men asking you to do things they can do for themselves. <laughs> Here's a grown man who's saying, no, 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 no. She has to make it. And I want to watch her put it together. But David seems to ignore any of this irregularity. And so he sends for Tamar. Tamar goes to the house. She went to the house of her brother Amnon who was lying down. She took some dough. She kneaded it, she made the bread in his sight and baked it. Then she took the pan and served him the bread, but he refused to eat. He's too sick, you see. Send everyone out of here, Amnon said, so everyone left him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food here into my bedroom so I may eat from your hand. You see, often the bedroom was adjacent to the living room or another sort of reception room. Tamar would ordinarily never 
have any reason to be in his bedroom. But under the circumstances, she finds herself there. She took the bread she had prepared. She brought it to her brother Amnon in his bedroom. When she took it to him to eat, he grabbed her and said, come to bed with me, my sister. Note the violence. No, my brother, she said to him, don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. What about me? Where could I get rid of my disgrace? And what about you? You would be like one of the wicked fools in Israel. She's begging. She's pleading. She's thinking of every reason she can to get out of this situation. And she's not wrong. Please speak to the king. He will not keep me from being married to you. Most commentators see this as not a desire on her part to actually marry Amnon, but (laughs) she would rather, if he's going to insist, that it at least be somewhat legitimized than to be assaulted. But her pleas fall on deaf ears. Verse 14, he refused to listen to her, and since he was stronger than she, he raped her. Then Amnon hated her with intense hatred. He hated her more than he had loved her. Amnon said to her, get up and get out. He doesn't even call her by name. She's treated as a piece of property. Up and out, I'm done with you. He called his personal servant. No, sorry, excuse me. She protests here. She says, no, she said to him, sending me away would be a greater wrong than what you've already done. But he refused to listen to her. He called his personal servant and said, get this woman out of my sight. Bolt the door after her. He gets the attendant to come in. Now it looks as if she's doing the wrong thing. Won't be the first time a woman's been blamed as a victim. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. She was wearing an ornate robe. Remember, she's a daughter of the king. She's a virgin daughter of the king. She's an eligible, one of the most eligible women in all Israel. Not anymore. She was wearing an ornate robe, for this was the kind of garment the virgin daughters of the king wore. Tamar put ashes on her head, and she tore the ornate robe she was wearing. She put her hands on her head and went away, weeping aloud as she went. Her brother Amnon, Absalom said to her, Has that Amnon, your brother, been with you? Be quiet now, my sister. He's your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. And Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's house, a desolate woman. When King David heard all this, he was furious. And Absalom never said a word to Amnon, either good or bad. He hated Amnon because he had disgraced his sister Tamar. It's horrible. Yeah, absolutely horrific. Tamar is now a desolate woman. Odds are that many of us here have either experienced some form of sexual assault or know someone who has. 
my encouragement to you is to know that God sees that just as he saw what was done to Tamar. That God saw fit for the wrong of Amnon not to be covered up, but to be recorded as it truly was, ought to be a lesson for us that God is in the business of truth. God is in the business of justice. But the whole thing is horrible, isn't it? We're, we're told that David is mad, but what does he do? The answer is he does nothing. He just stews with anger. What does, what does Tamar get? Tamar is now desolate. Sure, her brother lets her, lets her live in the house, but what is his, what is his word to her? Oh, just, just be quiet. Just, just, just there, there now. Just, just don't do anything about it. Just sit there and, and you know, let time heal all wounds is the sense you get. But it's okay, for Am, it's, okay, it's okay for Absalom to burn with anger and to burn with hatred. And Absalom plots his revenge. And I don't have time this morning to get into how the rest of the story disintegrates, but I want you to see how it unfolds and what triggers this. Because what happens next is... A story of a family that's reeling. As good as my glasses are, I can't read that. <laughs> but you have the timeline of events there. After this, Absalom flees for his life. He's estranged from his father. Oh, excuse me, after this, Absalom, two years, like, two years go by, sorry, two years go by, and he, and he sets up a charade in which he, he is able to kill Amnon, have Amnon murdered. After he has his, his half-brother murdered, he takes his revenge, he then goes into hiding in a foreign land. After some time passes, David arranges, well, actually Joab arranges for some sort of restoration between David and his son Absalom, but it's very perfunctory. And I'll just encourage you to, to, to jump forward. Absalom has been welcomed back into the land of Israel in chapter 14, verse 32, but Absalom is being given the cold shoulder by the king and by Joab, who arranged to get him back in the land. So after Absalom sets fire to one of his fields to get his attention, he says to Joab, look, I sent word to you and said, come here so I can send you to the king to ask, why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me if I were still there. Now then, this is what Absalom wants, I want to see the king's face, and if I'm guilty of anything, let him put me to death. Absalom wants an audience with the king because he wants justice. He says, hey, you can't lock me out. You can't just freeze me out of the land. You can't give me the cold shoulder. If you want me back, then let me talk to the king and let him be the king for once in his life and let him actually judge this situation. And if I'm guilty, I'll pay the price. But if I'm not then absolve me of all this and let's make up. Absalom wants justice. He wants a hearing. What does he get? Verse 33. So Joab went to the king and told him this. Then the king summoned Absalom and he came in and he bowed down with his face to the ground before the king. And the king kissed Absalom. That's all we get. 
Have you ever just really wanted to plead your case to somebody? You really just wanted to, to have them weigh in and just say, can we just clear all this up? Can you just tell me, am I right? Am I wrong? Am I inbounds? Am I out of bounds? Can you just, just give it to me straight? And you show up, whether it's the whether it's at the RMS or whether it's the courthouse or whether it's your, your boss's office, you show up and, and all you get is a perfunctory handshake. Nice to see you. Now, now be gone. That's the sense of what this audience is with between David and Absalom. They go through the ritual. Absalom bows down. David allows, David extends the, the royal kiss that's it, which explains why in chapter 15, you don't see any hesitation on Absalom's part to begin plotting a coup. So, the story unfolds and unfolds and unfolds and unfolds. There is so much relational pain going on here. We've talked about Tamar, obviously she's the victim. But there is multiple layers of pain as well. Pain of David, pain of Absalom, the, the, the physical pain inflicted on Amnon as he's murdered. The pain of bystanders like Joab who were caught up in all this relational backwash of sin and evil. What do we learn from all this? I suggest to you what we learn is this. Relational pain stems from not holding to the key tenets of responsibility in a relationship. And there may be more, but I'm going to just, just give you five of these. In any relationship, a relationship will define in some level what, where the authority lies. Is authority a factor at all? In some relationships, yes. In some relationships, not so much. But are the people who are entrusted with authority acting with the authority? David is the king, but he is not wanting to act like a king. Authority is the first. The second is intimacy. For relationship to flourish, there has to be this, this safe, intimate connection. Amnon is the perfect picture of someone who is happy to abuse somebody else for their own pleasure. He cares not one iota. And the act in which Amnon engages is not an act that is meant for selfish pleasure. It is an act that is meant to be an expression of love within a covenant, a committed covenant. So David abuses his authority. Amnon abuses the intimacy. The third thing that, that, that will cause pain in a relationship centers around the, the factor of honesty. A relationship will inflict pain once honesty is removed and it's replaced with deceit. Look at Jonadab who concocts this whole ruse. Look at David who's not fully communicating with Absalom. Authority, intimacy, honesty. Fourth, relational pain can be caused 
with a lack of what I'm going to call fidelity, which is the ongoing commitment. When the chips are down, it, who is going to represent me in this case? Who's going to represent me in this situation? David was not faithful to his children. He wasn't faithful to Tamar. He didn't protect her. He wasn't faithful to Amnon because Amnon didn't need an indulgent dad who was going to cover him up. Amnon needed a prophet. Amnon needed a Nathan to go and confront him and to say, what you did is a sin against the Lord and it's wrong and it's terrible and to call for repentance. David didn't do that. He wasn't faithful. He wasn't faithful to God. He wasn't faithful in the relationship. If he truly loved his son, that's what he would have done. Not coddled him. Lastly, generosity. A relationship thrives on generosity. It's built on generosity. There can be relational pain when there is a withholding. As we see, David is freezing out. Absalom. You know, I don't know if you've been frozen out by someone. I don't know if, if you've had someone who hasn't stepped up to the plate and advocated for you or treated you with the faithfulness that that relationship dictated. I, I'm sure you've been deceived many times in your life. You've probably had your intimacy violated, whether that's physical intimacy or emotional intimacy. You've probably had somebody in authority who's failed to uphold that authority in your life. All of these areas... All of these areas cause relational pain. We made it. That's the hard bit. Where to from here? Where to from here? As we come on David in chapter 16, he's a man who's abandoning his throne, and he's a picture of a man who feels abandoned in many ways, so much so that he's not even really distinguishing between his enemies. He's just saying, you know what, God's probably the one who's doing this. Where is home for the abandoned? Now, for David in this story, it's the banks of the Jordan. That's where he ends up. You can find that as you read further down the story. That's where they go and settle. But as David leaves, we have signs that things are beginning to change for him. The first sign is David, his sign of repentance is that he's willing to relinquish the place of his power. He's not trying to hold his identity together by his authority and by the signs of that. The next sign that we get that David is on the way towards repentance, on the way towards sort of coming back to where he needs to be, is the compassion that he shows to the welfare of his companions. He's concerned about those with him. The third sign that David's sort of getting things turned around, even as he's fleeing, is that David is able to endure the words of his accuser without retaliation. He sees that vengeance isn't his. Fourthly, and probably perhaps most significantly, David is ready to entrust himself to God's will and to cast his hope on God's mercy. Now, I want you to read that list. Does that remind you of anyone? 
Can you think of anyone in scripture who was willing to leave their place of power? Who in their moment of trial was considering the welfare of their companions? Anyone who was able to endure the false accusation and the scorn of their oppressors? There we go. Somebody who entrusted themselves fully to God's will. And someone whose hope is in God's mercy and God's vindication. I think we begin to see here a prefigure of our Lord Jesus in his trial. Our Lord Jesus as he's in Gethsemane. I encourage you, if you are in the midst of relational pain, the first thing you need to do is to get reconciled to God first. That's what needs to happen. If you haven't reconciled with the Lord, no other reconciliation is going to matter. If you haven't come to peace with him, there is no human peace that's going to protect you. There is no human peace that's going to save you or rescue you. Conversely, if you, if you have peace with the Lord, if you've reconciled with him and your heart is aligned with him, then as this same David would write, though I have 10,000 surrounding me, yet I am safe. I think it's interesting that David returns to the banks of the Jordan if you look at the history of God's people, the Jordan River plays a significant place in the story of God's people. It's where they cross to get into the promised land. The Jordan River is a place of consecration. It's a place of coming back. It's a place of repentance. John the Baptist ministered on the banks of the Jordan. As we get ready to turn to Luke chapter 7, it was, John the ba- it, was, it was about John the Baptist that Luke writes to the Pharisees. They rejected God's purpose for them when they refused to be baptized in the Jordan River. You see, in Jesus' day, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, the experts in the law, they missed the Messiah. They missed him because they weren't willing to have their time on the banks of the Jordan River. They weren't willing to be humble. They weren't willing to see their need before God. But lastly, I want to answer this question. What what if Jesus was there? How do you think this story would have gone? If Jesus was there. Now, lest you just supply the answer with your own imagination, which is... uh, I love imagination, don't get me wrong. But I want to just give you this account of another woman who was desolate. Different reasons. We're not told that this woman was raped. We're told that this woman was sinful, which implies that there was some responsibility on her part. But nevertheless, if you look at Tamar and you look at this woman at the end of Luke chapter 7, you see two women who have no place in society anymore. Two women who know the perversion of intimacy, of authority, of honesty, of fidelity, and of charity. We're told in Luke chapter 7, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the, ta- he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. What must she have heard about Jesus? 
Not only that she said, I need to see him, but that, that, that she said, I have a gift for him. What expectation must she have had? Verse 38, she's in the house as she stood there with an L, as she stood there behind him at his feet weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Here is this woman. Desolate, outcast of society. A woman who is seen with no value except to be used. And she comes to Jesus. What must she have known about Jesus? And there she is and she's weeping. I just imagine the pain. The pain is just pouring out. The burden is just, just falling. And the heartache and the misery and all the faces of the people that have rejected her and hurt her and abandoned her, it's just, it's just all getting poured out at his feet. And I imagine that ache turns to gratitude and as, as she begins to just, just be happy and comfortable at his feet. And she's just happy to give herself to show him kindness and hospitality. Now, the Pharisee doesn't get what's going on here. And in the context of Luke's gospel, there's this question going on about who is Jesus? Is he a prophet or not? And, and the, the Simon, the Pharisee, says, well, you know, if you were really a prophet and you knew who this lady was, you wouldn't be letting her do that. And Jesus replies, famously, two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Which of them will love him more? Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not pour oil on my head, but she's poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. You see, she was already trusting him for forgiveness. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say to them among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You know, I don't know if you can relate to this, but as I read this, I think how much of my time as a Christian have I spent trying to sit across the table from Jesus and try to negotiate and inquire and to ask and to, and to barter and to plead and to, and to try to sort of elicit some answer, elicit some, something from the divine miracle worker that's going to make my life go smoothly? 
And how often, like Martha, am I just saying, hey, Jesus, do you see what I got going on here? Can you help me out a little bit? Rally the troops. I think, how much time have I sat in my heart, in my armchair across from Jesus, just saying, can we talk a bit more about this thing you call the kingdom of God? When what my heart needs and what my heart wants is at his feet. It's at his feet. Humbled. Pouring out. Emptying. Bringing my gifts. Bringing my treasure sent. I got no use for this except that I can bring it to your feet. Oh, some of us, I encourage you, if you've been having philosophical conversations with Jesus, just put a pause on it. Find your way to his feet. Find your way there. Humble yourself. Do you know what this woman discovered? Is that she wasn't abandoned anymore. She was accepted at the feet of Jesus. If Jesus is anything, he is good. Jesus is never going to abandon you to injustice. I know you may think that now, but I just need to tell you that there is justice coming. He's not going to abandon you to injustice. Jesus isn't going to abuse you for his own pleasure. Jesus isn't going to deceive you for his own advantage. Jesus isn't going to... Stop interceding for us. And Jesus isn't going to withhold anything that is good for us. So finally, let's get practical for a second. Our relational path, it start, our relational pain, excuse me, it starts and it lands in the heart. So much of the pain that we experience, it's, it's evil desires it starts with evil desires in the human heart of somebody else. There's a corruption. There's sin. There's a sin problem. But guess what? What starts in their heart lands in our heart. But God's kingdom offers us both freedom and protection. The kingdom of God is not just a slogan or a catchphrase. It is the rule and the reign of Jesus Christ over all that he has made. So number one, first and foremost, trust your heart to Jesus. Meet him at his feet. Secondly, be reconciled first to God. I've said that already. How do you get right with God? If you're, if you're involved in sin, stop. Stop and turn. Listen. Open your ears to what God is saying. Turn. Repent. Cry out to him. Thirdly, let God define you not other people. So much of our relational pain is because of the lies that we've onboarded from these people and we let those lies define us. But those lies that are defining us are not what God says about us. It's not who we are now. Fourthly, love with the love God gives you. 
That is a far better love. And I encourage you, if you say, I, I, don't, I don't have love. I don't, I don't know where it comes from. I, I, don't even, I don't even know where to get it. Well, let that be a, a sign to you that it's time to rediscover the love of God. Because when you rediscover the love of God, you will find there is an abundance there. There is plenty to share. What people need is not your flattery. They don't need your sentimentality. They don't need your, they don't need your, your glory. They might want glory from you. They don't need that from you. What you can give is the love of God to people. A love that is honest and true and faithful and all those things we mentioned. Love with the love God gives you. And thirdly, and I thanks to my wife who let me read a wonderful paper she wrote yesterday. These points come out of that. Be wise about three things. Number one, the power of forgiveness. Forgiveness is a huge, it's a complicated topic. There's a lot of wonderful things written on it. But what you need to know is it's powerful, absolutely powerful. Secondly, the role of boundaries. Boundaries are really important. Forgiveness and reconciliation doesn't mean elimination of boundaries. Doesn't mean there are no rules to relationships. And finally, the reality of consequences. Some of the pain will have consequences. And these consequences may not be healed fully and finally until we are in glory with our great shepherd. So be realistic. Don't push. Be wise. As Spurgeon said, we have many needs, but we have a great Christ for our need. As the band comes up, I just want to uh, invite you, if this has triggered something for you that you need to discuss, there are a number of wonderful people that we can recommend from, on a professional level. If you would like to see someone to speak, uh, you know, to speak to a psychologist or to a counselor, uh, to speak to a therapist... If, there are, uh, if, if there's a spiritual component to this and you would like to talk with us as pastors, we're absolutely happy to do that. There's other women in our church who are wonderfully gifted and competent to be able to do this. We're happy to link you up with them as well. Again, this is, this is, this is something that all of us encounter in many, many different spaces. My encouragement is to you, God can help you here. He can help you here. Would you pray? Lord God, we thank you for your word. Sometimes it's hard to hear. It's hard to read. But Lord, we are grateful for Jesus. And I pray today that he would be great before our eyes. It's in his name we pray. Amen.